Okay. Well, we've talked about all the fun. Um... <laughs> we we got through an hour of like, oh, this is a great conversation. Then we hit the record button. It's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I don't have any fun banter to, to, to say. <laughs> Welcome to episode 360 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm a full revolution of Marshall Bach. Brian, it's 360. (laughs) Anyways, let's get into episode 360. We are supported this week by Float.com. Float is a resource scheduling tool that is visual, flexible, fast, and reliable. In the last two months, which is during the time that we've been talking about Float, They've launched integrations with the top four project management tools, Jira, Asana, Teamwork, and Trello. Huge. The integration features a sidebar that imports your tasks or issues into Float so you can drag and drop them onto your team members' schedules. If you want to learn more about upgrading your resource planning workflow, go to float.com slash design details. Thanks, Float. We also have some new very important pixels today. Huge shout-outs to Ashley Hopkins, Andy Weir, I recognize that name, too. Why do I? Andy Weir, Crystal Ellis, Hannah Feriankova, Chelsea Bishop, and Nick Humphreys. I, sw- I swear I know the name Andy Weir. Why do I know that? I don't know. Oh, he's a novelist. He wrote The Martian. Do you think it's that Andy Weir? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it is. Oh. Well, re- regardless of whether it's the that Andy or another Andy, we appreciate you being a patron, Andy. So thank you. Uh, if you didn't know, we're a listener-supported podcast. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash design details. And it's people like you that support the show and make it possible for us to record every week. You help pay for the software, the, the time that we put into the show, and, and all the tools that we need to release it and host it. So if you've been supporting the show, we really appreciate it. If you've been enjoying it and want to support us, you can do that for just a dollar a month. If you go to patreon.com slash design details, you can sign up. Well, what do you get for signing up? Uh, If you support us, you get access to a bonus segment in every episode called The Sidebar. Today, we we answered a bonus listener question about text hierarchy and contrast and arguing with the CEO. But in the past, it's usually like a cool things, but super design specific. We'll share a story or an anecdote or a cool tool that we found. Uh, On interview days, we'll do bonus questions, that kind of thing. So if that sounds interesting, go to patreon.com slash design details and consider supporting us for just a buck a month. We really appreciate it, and it makes the show possible. Okay, Marshall, really quickly, we got two tweets this week. So this one, first one's from Vin SG, which I can't tell if that's the full name. I'm so sorry. So I'm going to say Ving as the full name. Okay. Uh, Ving says, It is so painful to listen to other podcasts after being spoiled by Design Details Diligent, show notes and timestamps ah yeah it's working brian it's worth it's it so lovely when people notice because i mean you spend a shit ton of time on the editing side and getting mm-hmm. the chapter markers and the chapter names and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. you spend so much time on show notes on the back end doing show notes and like yep. putting them on the website and saving out the little preview image and everything mm-hmm. and yeah a lot goes the into this every week yeah. yeah yeah uh so we're glad you noticed we hope other people notice and enjoy them too All right, we had another tweet from Ying Yao who says, loved hearing design details tackle the question, do design systems stifle creativity? This was our topic last week. Mm -hmm. Ying says, to me, creating a single source of truth library of components and patterns frees designers to exercise their creativity in tackling interesting product challenges. 
Yeah. So I agree. I think that's uh, I think that's basically where I fell. Right. It was like. Yeah. It uh, it allows you to focus on the user problem instead of the pixels. Yeah. And some people are interested in those pixel problems, and and uh, there's there's paths for you. So, anyways, thanks thanks for the tweet, Ying. Hope you enjoyed the last episode. Awesome. Okay, Marshall, let's get into this week's main topic. We have another listener question. This time it is from Elliot Roche. Elliot asks, how to get quantitative measurements for user interfaces? Continuing, hi guys, love the show. I'm curious about how designers test their designs both while they're in development and once they're out in the world and public facing. Design tends to be overwhelmingly qualitative in the way people measure and interpret it. There's always surveys and self-reported measures that you can use. But I'm wondering more about, and here's what I think is a typo. I'm wondering more about the quantitative statistical type analysis. What are some ways to measure user experience or interface performance? There's plenty of optimization tools like Optimizely, VWO, and Google Optimize, but they seem to be built for marketing and sales teams and not really for designers or developers who want to know more about how the user interacts with the elements on the screen and not necessarily if they converted to a sale or a sign up or whatever. whatever. I love the ending or whatever. I think this is an interesting question because... Well, but before we get into this, Brian, if if you don't mind, um, it it took me an embarrassingly long amount of time to wrap my head around the difference between quantitative and qualitative research. (laughs) Uh And I'm still not entirely sure I understand it. So uh, for the benefit of our listeners and maybe me probably, uh, could you explain what the difference is between those two, please? Uh, the way I remember it is quantitative is about quantities. So it's more about the numbers like conversion rates and usage and data, like anything where there's a metric backing some conclusion that, that tends to fall in quantitative land. Mm -hmm. Qualitative is, I don't know how I remember this one. I guess I just remember the quantitative and, and the qualitative is the other one, which is more about how do people feel? Like what are, as Elliot mentioned here, like surveys, self-reported measures, that would be like in-person user testing. That would be CSAT. Uh, yeah, customer satisfaction. This kind of thing where you're like talking to people and you're assessing more the quality, the feeling, the um... je ne sais quoi. <laughs> sure, whatever that means. That means I don't know what. Yeah, fuck. I mean, I guess I don't have a good articulation for this, which is a problem. But it, it's the stuff that isn't backed by numbers. I, I think of it as more like the squishy thing. Like, how does this feel? Do people yeah, like yeah. our brand? Are they happy when they use our product? When they finish using the product, do they feel like they used their time well or they were productive? Like that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I have it in my head. It's like quant is the metrics, the hard numbers. Qual is the touchy-feely stuff. Yeah. So in this case, Elliot is asking more about the quant, but the quant as it relates to interaction with elements on the screen, like interface performance. But I think there's some tension in this question because I feel like anytime you're talking about anything quantitative, there needs to be a hypothesis that sort of precedes this. And... At the end, when Elliot said, like, we're not talking about sales conversions or signups or whatever, I think that whatever is actually important because that whatever could be something that's not necessarily about conversion. It could just be, uh, I don't know, like time spent or time to completion, like these kinds of things. But you would want to design something in a way that you have a hypothesis that you can improve something. So, like, if something takes a long time, it takes a lot of taps to complete, 
and you think you can simplify it and make it go faster. That would be in a hypothesis that would result in interface changes that then you would want to measure in some way to know if you were successful or not. Uh, and then you could then layer on the qualitative alongside this, right? You could say like, okay, people are getting through it faster, but are they getting through it faster with uh, more or less mistakes? Um, do they feel as confident about the speed at which they went through it? Like they, they, I don't know, selected all the right information, whatever your, your use case might be. So you might tag team both the qual and the quant and this kind of thing. But I would be wary of making interface changes that aren't derived from some hypothesis about how you can make something better for somebody. And I could be misreading the question because I'm sure Elliot is, is doing this, but I wouldn't want to spend a lot of time being like, we want to change the appearance of our buttons just because. You would want to change the appearance of buttons because they're not noticeable or, or they conflict with other colored elements on the screen or uh, they don't have great contrast ratio. They don't work with well with icons or they have crappy loading states. I don't know. You, like, you would want to make these kinds of changes for, for a purpose. So I don't know. Am I, are you reading the question in the same way as me, Marshall? I think so. Yeah, and it's several questions, right? Th this is more of a you question than a me question, I think, <laughs> probably. Well, you could talk about like how you know that, especially on the design system side, like how are you going to know that visual changes you make are successful? Like how do you decide as you're working through the system, how do you decide when something needs a visual change and how are you going to know that you made the right visual change? Um, so I'm very new and I haven't been doing this very long. So I don't know quite yet. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. This is the really hard question is, and, and this is part of the question too, is both while something is in development and once it's out in the wild, how do you measure these things? Yeah, so you can measure anything, right? Like I think the, the honest answer to this is just like put some fucking tracking on anything that you want to see how many times <laughs> someone taps on something or swipes on something. <laughs> yeah. But you got to be cautious because you can just overwhelm yourself in data that's not actually answering a question. Well, this is the way it goes back to your hypothesis, right? Like if you're going to measure a metric, it, there has to be a reason for measuring that metric that will feed directly into some sort of formula. And you need to have a hypothesis about how that formula will suss out based on the choices you've made. Yeah, I feel like there's kind of a formula to this that you can follow. It's like basically, you know, there's a behavior that we've noticed. That behavior could be an emergent behavior that we never foresaw or, or there's just a problem with the way an interface is built. So we've noticed some behavior and we want to change it because by changing it, it will do something. It will make people happier. It will increase sales. It will do something. Like there will be an outcome for, for adjusting or improving that behavior. And then the third piece is we know we will have been successful if X happens. So if, if sales go up, if uh, we see lots of positive tweets. If people, we have fewer customer support requests in this particular product area. Like there's all these different ways you can measure that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But like that's kind of a nice formula to decide what you should be changing or tweaking. Although I do understand there is some tension with having that formula and also just being like, ah, our app just kind of feels old. Like I kind of just want to update it, you know? Like yeah. I would say it's still probably worth backing those kinds of changes at all times with some sort of heuristic of success. And I think it's okay for it not always to be quantitative. Like you could literally just be like, hey, we want to tweet out some screenshots and see if we get like positive response. I think that's 
as about as loosey goosey as you'd want to go, like <laughs> in terms of fluffy uh, sort of confidence in a change. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I I could understand why you'd want to just change things. But yeah, having having a reason is always gonna be lead you down the more successful path. I think. Elliot asked about ways to measure user experience or interface performance, for lack of a better word. And one of the things that I've seen a lot lately is an emphasis on addressing perceived latency. Have you noticed this, Brian? Yeah. And I love it. And I I feel like this is the sign of the industry getting more mature when we're thinking about little things like how long a page feels like it's loading. Yeah, there's there's that. There's some really interesting stuff happening in like React right now as well. There's a feature that's in kind of beta right now called React Suspense. And I'm not technical enough to describe it, but it's <laughs> loosely this, how do we address when you have like parent-children relationships among components mm-hmm. and parents and children usually like overlap in some data, but children might need some discrete data on their own. But a lot of times the way that we build websites is such that like, a single child that is loading prevents the entire parent from loading. Like it'll display a spinner on the whole thing. Mm. So they're working on systems to allow basically parents with some piece of shared data to render first. Uh, They're also doing some interesting work around putting timeouts behind spinners. So like a lot of times, I think it's, if it's under 300 milliseconds, you might not need a spinner, but anything beyond that, people start to wonder if the interface is frozen or if it's broken. So at that point, you want to show a spinner. And so there's some some work you can do there to prevent basically the problem that Twitter has right now, which is when you load twitter.com, you get like five spinners at once. You get like mm-hmm. two or three spinners in the sidebar, spinner in the timeline area. Mm-hmm. But if you could say, ah, this thing's actually result- going to resolve in like 100 milliseconds, uh, you could just avoid the spinner and just let the content load. So yeah, anyways, sorry, I, I derailed, but like this perceived latency is definitely like a huge focus for the developer community right uh, now too. Uh, totally. And and uh, I, I think what's even better is the development of these like kind of ghost states where we know what the general layout of the information on this page is going to be before it loads. So let's just put something there and do the the glimmer thing. Like this all goes back to fucking Facebook paper as all things do, but yeah. If you can't load fast, you can still know kind of what the page is going to look like, right? Yeah, there's actually one thing that's been really cool. So the web.dev team, which is kind of like the Google performance team, they they have the Lighthouse audits. They added some new tests and actually changed what they consider to be like the gold standard default tests. Hmm. And one of them, I think it's called content reflow something like that, which is basically like imagine you load a content-heavy page, like a a news article, and and somewhere near the header, there's an image. Uh, A lot of times you'll load the page, the text will load first, then the image will load and sort of push the text down. Mm -hmm. Uh, Google's now detecting if your content sort of reflows Ah. as images load, and it'll give you a worse score. And so Mm. they're putting a lot of emphasis on, hey, like, if there's going to be an image here, tell us the dimensions ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the browser will preserve that space so the text doesn't jump around. And this is, of course, especially useful for people on slower networks where they might be a sentence or two into reading by the time the image loads. And you don't want them to have to reorient themselves on the page if the image was really tall or something like that. Or, God forbid, about to click, right? Oh, my God. This is the problem with like search type aheads and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Exactly that. Like, how do you prevent a lot of content reflow as stuff loads asynchronously? 
And and the thing that would be measured by fixing this would be very qualitative, right? I think so. There'd be some qualitative. There might be some quantitative, like workflowy stuff. Like I imagine there's got to be. I hope some data around like people go to search, they start typing for something, they click on a result, and then they immediately search again, like within one second. That tells me like, oh, hey, we probably like reordered this type ahead search results in uh, such a way that they clicked on the wrong thing, which mm-hmm. happens on Twitter and, and iOS Spotlight all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that there's some data around like that kind of behavior, like more workflow, less like single point of interaction. Anyways, uh, I didn't expect us to go down this rabbit hole, but that was fun. I uh, hope this was helpful. If if other things come to mind for listeners, please tweet at us. We'd love to hear ideas or anything that we might have missed. We're at Design Details FM on Twitter. Okay, cool things? Yeah, let's do some cool things. You want to go first? All right, Marshall. I'm stuck at home. We're all inside. We work from home. Kind of bored. Not going out much. One thing I realized is I've never driven the Tesla. And so I was like, ah, I kind of want to have some fun and like drive an electric car and see what the hype's all about. Uh-huh. And so I, I went onto the Tesla.com website mm-hmm. and it turns out they have fully adapted to the sort of COVID landscape and they have what they're calling touch-free test drives. Hmm. And I don't know how this worked before, but we actually went and just for fun test drove a bunch of cars. And these days the the salesperson or the rep or whatever, they don't ride in the car with you. So basically we showed up to a Tesla story wearing a mask. Uh, the other person's wearing a mask. They hand you the keys. Uh, you walk to a car. You get inside. They stand on the outside. You roll down the window, and they kind of just say, like, hey, tap this, tap this. This does this. This does this. And you're good to go. And then you go off and drive on your own. And I don't know if that's how it's always worked, but this is the first time I've ever test-driven a car. And so we, and it's the first time I've ever d- test-driven an electric car uh-huh. uh, or driven one in general. So anyways... For people who are like me and haven't done it and are near a Tesla store and are <laughs> bored and just want to experience it, yeah, I highly recommend it. Uh, some they, some free kicks. If yeah, you're bored. yeah, yeah. They they asked no questions. They didn't assess my intent to buy or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, there's, they, there's no nothing. Credit check. Yeah, yeah. No pressure or anything. Actually, I had to show them my driver's license. That's about it. And then you're off on your own. And so we just like went and kind of cruised around town for half an hour. It was fun. That's awesome. So so what did you think, man? Was it I like, was it fun? Was it when you pressed on the pedal, did it go fast? <laughs> cargo vroom. Uh-huh. It was fun. Burr. Um, yeah, cargo burr. Uh, it's very fun. We test drove the X and we test drove the Y. And the X, just the way the glass sort of slopes up from the windshield, you feel like you're in a fucking spaceship. Yeah. It is so cool. Uh, the Y is a much more appropriate size and like easier to maneuver and, and they have like kind of the new slim down dashboard and everything that, that yeah. the three has. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nice. I would say the Y is the much more practical car and it's like way cheaper. Boy, oh boy, are they fun. And yeah, when you get on the highway and you want to like, I don't know, switch lanes and someone's coming up behind you pretty quick and you have uh-huh. that instant acceleration. Oh, it feels so good. <laughs> Wow. So yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a convert. I've always liked Tesla, but I've never cuz I've never driven one. I've ridden in one, but never driven one. Did did you adjust to this center screen to your right instead of straight in front of you? No, and I think you'll have to get used to that. That's honestly I kind of like the X the X felt a tiny bit more traditional cuz it actually has the dashboard behind the steering wheel. Yeah. With an all digital interface, it's very clean, like it does some really cool shit with maps like when you're navigating, like half of it becomes a map beautiful so that all felt really cool but yeah then when you switch to the y you just got to get used to glancing in a different place than i've Mm -hmm. glanced for how long have i driven 12 years so 
I don't know. I guess it would take some getting used to, but I suppose enough people do it that it's probably not a problem. Well, I think uh, I had a girlfriend who had a Prius, and that HUD is in the center of the dash. And so. and how did you like driving it? I mean, it's a, it's a hybrid car, but you don't get any acceleration when you push the pedal. <laughs> That's for fucking sure. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a nice car. It's a, it's a Prius. Um, but yeah, it was weird getting used to looking down into the right rather than just straight down. I don't know why we don't have heads-up displays in every single car, like the projected heads-up display on the... I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I test drove a car that had that. We went. Uh-huh. We just had a fun day of test driving cars, and I test drove a Volvo, and it had that projected heads-up display, uh-huh. and that shit is distracting as hell. Really? Is this bad design, or is it inherent? I think it's bad design. I think okay, you might get you used to it. I'm I'm making just such a snap judgment, but five minutes into the test drive, I turned it off. It's these like white dots in your peripheral vision, but like straight ahead. So like you can kind of blur them out if you're focusing on the road, but it's a fucking interface. Like it's numbers and and like graphics right in front of you overlaid on top of obstacles on the road like other cars. It just, I don't understand it, but I don't know. Really all I I mean, I, I would like to be able to configure it obviously, but like just if it's just my speed, just put my speed on the windshield. So it was... It's just your speed, and if it knows the speed limit of the area you're in, it'll put the speed limit next to that. So Perfect. It's only that's two all things. I want. Yeah, yeah, that's all I want. But that was distracting. I'm telling you, it was distracting. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So actually, here, how about this? If anyone's listening and it has that heads-up display, mm-hmm. tell me if you get used to it or if you had to turn it off because I, I don't know. It felt really bad. Well, cool thing, Brian. <laughs> uh, yeah, fun, fun day out. Anyways. Uh, my cool thing this week, Brian, is a YouTube series, surprise, surprise, called Survive the Hunt. Now, uh, this is a really crazy idea, but it's so much fun. Okay, so there's this channel named Fail Race, and he and, I don't know, 20 of his buddies get on their own GTA 5 online server. So they're the only ones in there. It's the entire city just to them. They basically play a game of It of tag, right? Where Fail Race, the the channel I'm recommending, he our protagonist. Our yeah. protagonist, yes. He he gets a little bit of a head start, but he has to survive for 24 in-game hours uh, without being caught and killed by all the other people that are that are chasing him, the hunters. He's the trying to survive. Hence survive the hunt. So the most uh, dangerous game. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's some rules, though, right? So on his side, he because there's just one of him, he gets a little bit of a head start. He gets two minutes head start, which is like an hour in game. He has much better weaponry than all of his hunters. No one can fire from a car. You have to get out of a car to shoot a weapon. Uh, so it's kind of a gamble if you want to get out and maybe get hit or he drives away, you know. And uh, once a hunter dies as part of a pursuit, they're out of the game. And if he makes it, all 48 hours, then then he wins. In the meantime, in order to kind of make it interesting, there are these pink Priuses, speaking of Priuses, they're like these little pink Priuses hidden across the map that are owned by the hunters that he is supposed to blow up with like a sticky bomb while he's within a, like within the block where that car is, and it lets all the hunters know where he is. So it's this game of how many of these can I blow up without getting caught, right? So it ends up being this like 50-minute long video. Every single video is about 50 minutes long, regardless of whether it gets caught early or not, so you don't know ahead of time. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, because that, that would give it away. Right? Oh, this, mini- this video is 20 minutes long. Obviously, it gets caught right away. But every video ends up being this crazy roller coaster of him 
trying to evade capture by pretending to be an AI in the game. So like looking like traffic. So he has uh-huh. to get out of a good car that would be fast and get into a, a slower car that an average NPC, a non-player character might be rolling around with, right? The problem with that is he has to pick a car that's good enough that he can get away if he gets spotted because there are some things that AI do that he can't do and vice versa so that if he needs to run, he can run. Like you could imagine like, oh, why don't you just get like a, an 18 wheeler or some like random weird car that they'd never look at, right? Uh, a big panel van or something that they, like, they, they would never expect you to grab and just drive that around the whole time. Well, as soon as you get caught, there's no, you're not getting away. <laughs> they're they're uh-huh. gonna. They right, have right, whatever. Right. They have helicopters. They have a blimp. It, it's very interesting. So a lot of times when he's in a chase, he has both ground pursuit and air pursuit that he has to. And and the way to lose them is different depending. So it's it's this nail biting roller coaster ride every single episode of is he gonna get caught? Do they see him? Do they? You know, if his car gets damaged, he has to change cars. And changing cars is the scariest thing because AI characters don't change cars. Um, <laughs> there's certain uh-huh. paths that the AI don't walk on. So if you're caught uh-huh. walking in an area where AI don't walk, that's got to be him. Anyways. All that to say, it's a very entertaining series. Link in the show notes. Uh, It's something that I kind of wish there were more episodes. I think there's only 25, uh, which sounds like a lot. But but they go go quick. And the early ones aren't as good because they're kind of, they made up the game. So they're defining it as they go. Like the blowing up the prees comes around like episode nine or something like that, you know. But by the last like several episodes, it's just they've got it honed down. The hunters are really mature in how they figure out whether it's him or not. And it's fascinating. So highly recommended. Cool. All right. Cool thing. Link in the show notes. This week is two things you can do if you're bored. One (laughs) is stay inside. One is go outside. There you go. Mm -hmm. Be like Brian or be like Marshall. (laughs) (laughs) Or be like both. The days are long and you have lots of time. Anyways, so thank you for listening. This has been episode 360 of the Design Details Podcast. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. If you did like it and want to support us and make a future episode possible, go to patreon.com slash design details and support us starting for just a buck a month. You'll get access to complete episodes of the show with the weekly segment called The Sidebar. If you need more podcasts, go to spec.fm. That's our podcast network for designers and developers. Just Just like like you. you. There you go. And uh, that's it. Tweet at us. We love hearing from you. Otherwise, we'll catch you next week. Good to the bye. And I'm a full revolution of Marshall Bach. Brian is 360. <laughs> uh, sure. What does that mean? Okay, so what does it mean to be the 360 version of you? Uh, I'm basically the same person I was before. I've just, it's like when people fuck up saying uh, they did a 180 and they say they did a 360, yeah. it's like that. Yeah. I, I'm right back where I started. Yeah, uh, that always trips people up, right? They say, I did a 360. They're trying to say I, I, I spun around. But yeah, I completely changed my mind. I did a 360. And but you yeah, know, yeah. well, here, let me get your take on this. If I were to tell you it's all downhill from here, mm-hmm. does that mean that it's better or worse? It's contextual, right? 
Yeah, like, is it easy because I'm coasting, or is it bad because everything gets worse from here? Yeah, I don't know. But that that is being directionist because that's just implying that down is bad. Mm-hmm. Here's an interesting one. Here's a language one, Brian. Okay. What does just about mean? Like, I, I need to catch the bus, and I just about make it. Did I catch the bus, or did I miss it? I just about made it. Um you missed it. You missed the bus. Yeah. You, Here we would say you, you missed it, but uh, I think in England specifically, not in all of the UK, but like just in England, that means you barely made it. Oh, interesting. Interesting, right? Oh, man. We could do so many. That's like the bi-weekly, semi-weekly, or Ugh. semi-monthly, bi-monthly kind of thing. Yeah, bi-weekly. I just say fortnightly now. <laughs> sure you do. Okay. It's <laughs> Amen. It, it gets rid of all ambiguity. Like bi-weekly, does that mean twice a week or once every two weeks? Yeah, fortnightly, every two weeks. There you go. Okay. Anyways, let's get into episode 360, 